0: Welcome to the Brett Boone Podcast as we explore the mind of former MLB All Star, Silver Slugger, and Gold Glove winner Brett Boone as he sits down with his friends from the world of professional sports. On this episode of the Boone Podcast, Brett sits down with Basketball Hall of Famer, TV icon, and Tampa Bay Rays season ticket holder Dickie V.
1: Dick Vitale.
0: That's what they want, little dipsy Doo, Jamboo!
1: And now, here's, here's your, your host, Brett Boone. Boone. Welcome to the Boone Podcast. I'm Brett Boone, and we've got a great show for you today. I don't think you'll find a bigger baseball fan than our next guest. He's a longtime season ticket holder for the Tampa Bay Rays, even when they stunk. The Mets have Seinfeld, Yankees got Billy Crystal, and the Tampa Bay Rays have our next guest. When you think of college hoops, he's at the top of the list. Ladies and gentlemen, Hall of Famer Dick Vitale. Dick, thanks for coming on the show.
2: Oh, no problem, Brad. I'm a little happy right now because our, uh, our race went out there in New York City. I think you're a little familiar with the Yankees. <laughs> we won three straight and beat them down there. I think you might have a little family down there as well. I'll
1: tell you, I was watching. It was ugly. <laughs> it was ugly. I haven't What's talked. What's going on I with the
2: Yankees? I, I don't understand. I got those $200 million payroll and Some of those guys, I I just don't get it. I just don't get it. Stanton's been a guy, obviously, great power, but he's been injured so much. And, you know, Sanchez has been up and down behind the plate. Shortstop defensively is really not the greatest. But, uh, uh, you know, it must be tough for your brother, really, to have to go through that because the expectations, because of the dollars they spent, sometimes are are, are out of whack. Uh, The expectations are based on – you know the pinstripes and the history and tradition, and some people have caught them,
1: without a doubt. And and you do have that payroll. The bottom line is this: I sit there and I'm as you know I'm as I try to take off my brother hat and and I strictly just uh, I analyze what I see. First of all, you can't control the players that you have are the players that you have. If they don't get the job done, well. You know somebody goes down for it, <laughs> but that that's life and that's and that's baseball. I think you make a great point with the New York Yankees, and you know, and I talked to Aaron about this when when he first got hired. I said, "What what an unbelievable uh, job to get right out of the chute for your first one." But there's expectations that come, as you pointed out, with being the New York Yankees. There's expectations uh, for being an L.A. Laker, for being a Celtic, for being a Dallas Cowboy. You can go manage in Detroit, but you're not going to be as criticized. But then again, being the Yankee manager, you know, there's so many perks. But but you know what you're getting into. I think Aaron uh, relishes it. I think he's done a great job. Uh, there's too much talent for them to continue to play like they are. But, but your boys, I'll tell you, Tampa Bay's got their number right there, and they know it. And, and you can just feel—I can feel it through the TV. These guys know it, it doesn't matter what the payroll is. They know that the Yankees know they're coming to play each and every time they hook up. So it should be an interesting year. But, but uh, yeah, it was definitely tough for me to watch <laughs> from from a brother's perspective. <laughs> But I want to talk about
2: this. Your brother's done a great job. He really has. Uh, I, I watch him, and I watch him in the dugout. My seats see next to the dugout, he has great rapport with the players. But, you know, you can't go out and swing the bat for him. You can't pitch. And people don't understand that. It's always quickly, you know, blame the manager, blame the manager. And Rays, I've played great against him. You know the Rays have won seven consecutive series against the Yankees? Seven. I do, and you know, I'm about it? We got swept at home by the Rangers before we went to New York.
1: Yeah, but like I said, there's there's the league and, and, you know, I knew when I was going to certain ballparks, I knew, oh, it doesn't matter how I'm swinging right now. The fact that I'm going to Anaheim, I know my bat's going to get hot. It's just an inner confidence. And I think the Rays, hey, we're going to play the Yankees right now. It doesn't matter how they're playing at the time. They know. We've got the Yankees number, and and that's a, a psychological advantage that they're taking advantage of right now. Because uh, I've been through many of many of those um, weird circumstances in my career. I, I think it what makes you know it's what makes the game so cool and unique. But uh, yeah, they definitely have a leg up right now. I want to talk definitely about your. Really- your Tampa Bay Rays and, and the connection, you know, I, I said in the open, you get the, the Billy Crystal. Yeah. He's a New York Yankee fan forever. You know, Larry David shows up at the Dodger game. How did Dick Vitale become such a, I know you're a, you're a diehard baseball fan, but how did you become such a Tampa Bay Rays fan?
2: Well, you know, uh, Brett, uh, I've always been a, baseball fans since a five years old used to love. Went to my first game in Yankee Stadium and I'll never forgot that moment uh, it was special and unique and used to go there and I'm not proud to say this I'm not proud at all I in high school many a time cut class and went out to Yankee Stadium and, and went to watch the Yankees play I mean it just was it, it, I was just a fanatical I mean mother gave me a Yankee uniform when I was a, a young kid and, and when I got that Yankee uniform it was like oh my god I couldn't believe it and you dream and you chase these crazy dreams hoping one day maybe you could be there and then reality sets it it's not happening man like then have the talent that you had your brother had your dad had your grandfather had I mean (laughs) it's unbelievable what the boons have done but anyway I you know I moved here and when I moved here I want to support the local teams. So I immediately got involved, and I just said, forget my allegiance all the years, but I was out in New Jersey and New York as a Yankee guy before the Yankees. I used to be a Red Sox guy, and then when the Red Sox couldn't beat the Yankees, I said, screw that. I'm going out here for the the (laughs) pinstripe since I lived down here anyway. But uh, I've I've been a Braves fan, and I, I admire respect so much. What they have done, what they have done, what bothers me, Brett, we just can't seem to make the people here understand how special it is what they've achieved. We just don't get crowds, and we just don't get people out, and that really disturbs me in a way, and I'd hate to lose a franchise here. I know one thing. I'll tell you this right now, right on your podcast. They know my feelings. I've publicized this before. I am not going to buy season tickets if they split the scenario with Montreal and Tampa, no way, shape or form. Do I wear a Montreal hat for half the year and wear a Tampa hat? Either at all, I go back to the pinstripes.
1: Yeah, I don't see that scenario. I mean, it, you know, in theory, it's, Oh, we'll give, we'll give Montreal half this, half that, that that's not going to work. I agree with you though, on, on the crowds. Cause I remember going to Tampa, uh, when they came into the league and it's a, you know, it's, it it always gets ranked as the worst ballpark. You know how it is inside. It's just different than any other big league venue. I happen to like hitting there actually (laughs) from a Uh selfish standpoint, but you're right. It was kind of that Montreal feeling the Marlins when they, when they were uh, at the old football stadium, uh, you just, you'd show up and there'd be no fans. So from a, uh, from an atmosphere standpoint, it wasn't very good. But I'll tell you what, I, I, I'm very critical of organizations and how they build their team, how they build their franchise. That Tampa Bay Rays staff top to bottom, what a great job they've done. Especially always handicapped with that budget situation, fans not coming to the ballpark, uh, the turnover that they have to have. Kind of like the Oakland A's. You know, in a similar situation, bad ballpark, trying to be, get out of it for years, working with a limited budget, but it seems year after year, man, they just turn it over and they're always there fighting for that playoff spot where you see teams with twice the budget. Uh, you know, my Seattle Mariners, for example, we got twice, three times the budget. They haven't been to the postseason in 20 years, but yet Tampa Bay, year in and year out, is getting it done. That's called great management management. They draft really well and develop their players.
2: Yeah, they really do a good job there. I was a little disappointed, you know, this year we came one game away from really, you know, the World Series, game six. We lose the heartbreaker. Uh, Snell comes out of the lineup. But what really disappointed me, Brett, but, you know, you learn to accept it after a while. We lose, not two. we have a great year. We had a year before we won 96 games, and we don't re-sign or what. Our ace pitcher, we trade him Snell, and we don't re-sign Morton. So our one-two guys go down, and now we're struggling a little bit in terms of on the mound, except, like I said, the Yankees, they got healthy there quickly. But uh, I don't know if it'll continue all year. But they've done a great job with the drafting players. And I'm telling you, we got a guy in the minor leagues, and I just wish they'd have him upright. In fact, you know, this, is, this is true. I sent a note out to the president of the Rays today about something of a charity I run. They they support me all the time. The kids battling cancer. But I put it in. On another note, I said, when am I going to see Juan DeFranco? It's time, man. This kid everybody says is legit. He's for real. They tell me he's the best prospect in all of baseball.
1: Yeah, and you could see him soon. You know, and, and they'll probably play it on on how he gets the the start he gets off to, and how the Rays are doing. You know, I'd say, and also uh, on a
2: contract. You know, a lot of times, well, what they do here, what I've been told, what I've been told, they don't want to start that clock. That quickly, so I they did him with with Price too. When David Price was was a pitcher, they made him. There's a certain day, I think. There's a certain day, like May or whatever it may be, where you bring him up and you don't get penalized for the year uh, in terms of his clock running. So I I don't I don't know the rules as much as like you would probably, but I'm hoping that because I just hear rave reviews. Switch hitter, they said he can do it all. I I had a scout tell me. He's, he's, I think, he's twenty. Near, he's twenty now, nineteen or twenty. They told me when he was eighteen. I said, "Dick, I'm telling you right now, that guy hit three hundred right now in the major leagues."
1: Yeah, and, and we might see him. what it is is that they call it the super twos. So you're the the baseline is your arbitration eligible after three years, but there is a super two. So there's a certain amount of people, and it fluctuates year to year. But yeah, it's usually right around. Uh, let me let me give you an example a full major league season i believe is 180 days so it, it'll be like Two years plus 145 games. If if you have that many games, then you're eligible to go to arbitration. If you have 144 games, you got to wait another year. And believe me, all the clubs know what that number is going to be each calendar year. So you're right. It, it one year it might be you know a month. The next year it might be three weeks. But but believe me, those rays know exactly how much time. And and I think. You know, for me, as the as the pure baseball fan, I don't like that. I don't control it. I feel when you're ready and and you deserve to go to the big leagues, you go to the big leagues. And with the money in exactly. the game today, and with the money in the game today, what's it going to save you a million dollars yeah, if well, you got a, a franchise like player? Cooner, you
2: look at the young guy down there with Atlanta, Tatis down here. They struggle uh, a little bit right now, about San Diego. Uh, you look when you played Griffey and Rodriguez; those guys yeah. didn't waste time, man. You either have it or you don't have it when you're that good.
1: All right, well I want to talk about Dick Vitale growing up. How good first of all, how good of a basketball player were you as a kid? And was it always basketball? Did did you grow well, up playing was, you know, baseball or just a fan?
2: Oh, yeah. Yeah, baseball was was a love for me. I I pitched in the little league. Somebody sent me an article about oh god Six months, a year ago, 50 years ago, article where I, I had a no-hitter uh, going for the last out, struck out 15 of eight. I used to throw real hard. I threw really hard. And in Little League, if you throw hard from the mound, 45 feet, you're in pretty good shape. And I, I really had a very good career. The high school baseball coach, he'd always see me. His great, great guy. Chick DeVito, his name was. And he'd call me, call me Richie. I said, Richie! He had a squeaky voice. Richie, I can't wait to get you in high school. Well, my biggest problem happened for me. I joined the team when I was 13 years old, like a 13 to to 16-year-old, I don't know what they called it then, they had a special league that's years ago, but it was 13 after the little league, and I got a coach who told me, man, you throw the ball hard, but now you're going to go to 60 feet, so I'm going to give you a little edge here. I'm going to teach you how to throw a real good curveball, and I'm going to tell you, I did that, and I swear to you, Brett, I couldn't throw the ball through a glass window. After that, it was my arm. You know, in those days, we didn't know about Tommy John's and all. That. I probably needed one. I would my elbow would pain all the time. It would hurt. I put ice on it the whole bit. And I got to high school. I think I pitched like one game for my whole career. I couldn't. I couldn't throw the ball anymore. But it was it was gone. It was gone. That's why I, I. You know, I have a problem. I'm gonna be honest with you. You you. No better than I because you know baseball you played it but I have a problem when I watch the little league world series and I'm watching these kids throwing curves and I'm watching people talking about it, and nobody making a point I, I I have a tough time watching 11 12 year old kids that your arm is definitely as you know you're snapping that baby up you put such pressure on that elbow well, what are your feelings about that
1: I'll tell you what in in when I I got a story for it. When I was 12 years old, we were in that tournament, you know, the one that eventually gets you to Williamsport. My team didn't make right. it, but we had two pitchers on our little league staff that would we'd pitch three innings every game each. And my dad was away. My dad was playing at the time, so he would always say, "Brett, I don't want you throwing curveball." And I was a late bloomer, so I didn't even hit puberty. Till right when I got in high school. So when I was 12, I was like a little boy, 12, you know, five foot one, 110 pounds. You know, I didn't have a hair. I didn't have a hair on my body yet. And I'm up there. But I knew dad's at the ballpark. He's not going to see this. I was snapping off breaking balls all the time. And when you're 12 and, and nobody can hit it, even though mom and dad tell you not to throw it, usually You're gonna you're gonna throw it when they're not watching. Anyway, we get to we get to the New Jersey. uh, I think it was close to the state championship. I'm pitching, my arm snaps on the mound, and it blows up. And I look at my arm, and I walk off the field. I broke my arm throwing a breaking ball. And my dad, I remember, I I can't tell you how mad he was. And we went to the doctor and the doctor said, this isn't good. This could really affect his arm going forward. I put it in a cast. It ended up working out all right for me. You know, I maybe that's why I was a second baseman and not a shortstop with a cannon arm. But it ended up working out for me. But with my kids growing up, it's like it's not. It's not important enough when you're 11 and 12 to strike everybody out with a breaking ball to risk anything, you know, going forward in your future. So I'm a big uh, advocate for until these kids hit puberty are men. uh, I I don't like them spinning the ball. I've, I've coached, you know, at several levels on a travel ball situation with young kids. And I, and I see these little kids and, and I talk to their parents. I said, I don't like him throwing it. I'm just telling you what happened to me, and it's just not right. worth it. There's too much of a future ahead of you to get the gratification right now of having that that nasty breaking ball. But, yeah, that, right. that, that that's my thoughts on it.
2: And as first basketball, you know, I lost my eye as a kid, and I just could never be the player that I, I wanted to be. But I was a good high school player, a decent high school player. I would going say good, decent high school player. Uh, but – you know, I've always had a great affinity for sports. Just love, love competition. Always been a competitor. Everything I've ever done, and I realized I couldn't be a player, so I decided to start studying the game. And I coached a baseball team. I had a hell of a baseball team. I was like 20. I mean, I was 22 years old, and I coached this AAU baseball team. Johnston uh, it was called the uh, John. We played in Johnstown, Pennsylvania, by winning the state championship in uh, New Jersey, and we were the representative for the New Jersey going out to Johnstown, PA. Triple A baseball, they called it, and uh, we had, we had a heck of a team. Man, I had about five, six guys signed contracts. Uh, I had one guy went it to the major leagues. You maybe remember him? I don't know if you do or not. He's a hell of a basketball player as well. Play for the Phillies, uh, it was before you, obviously. Johnny Ron Briggs, <laughs> is that <your> name?
1: <laughs> what is his name?
2: Johnny Briggs.
1: Johnny Briggs, B-R-I-G-G-S.
2: no. GGS, I... Play with the Phillies, uh, left-handed hitter. And then uh, I had, <laughs> we got beat, you won't believe this. We got beat by a team from Baltimore. Their pitcher was a guy who got in a fight with Billy Barton in a, in a, in a club in Detroit. Lindell AC, his name was Boswell, Dave Boswell. He came in and out of the bullpen, and we also got beat. Ron Swoboda played against us. Ron Swoboda played for this Baltimore team. So we had a good baseball team, and that changed my life, though, because in the crowd coming to watch us in baseball all the time was a guy who's an administrator in Garfield and Education. He came up to me and said, Have you ever thought about coaching? Because I was working in an accounting office, I had a bachelor's in business, and I was working in an accounting office, and I was bored out of my mind, didn't like it, hated it, and he said to me, hey, I can hire you here, you teach in elementary school, and you coach the junior high teams, and I love the way you report with players, I love your enthusiasm, your energy. And I said, yeah, I'm interested, but I said, I don't have a degree in education. That's okay. He said, well, how do you, what they call a provisional certificate? You go back at night and you get the certification while you're teaching and coaching. And I did it. And I coach football. And I'll tell you this, I coach football, basketball, baseball. In football, Brett, I don't know wing tees to split tees. I don't know all the technical knowledge, but I had one thing with my team when I had a meeting. I said, let's go straight right now. All I know is this. If they get six, we better get seven. We didn't lose the game. We were undefeated. And then I went, I I, I coached baseball, and then I decided, I said, you know what, you can't get ahead in baseball unless you're a former player somehow. you got to be at least a minor league or something. So that's not going to work for me. Uh, I didn't know enough in football to be a football guy. So I said, you know what? I've studied basketball because I looked at other guys who made it. And then I just went out to clinic after clinic after clinic and I specialized in basketball. Got lucky, went back to my alma mater, East Runner from New Jersey. Coached there. I was like 24 years old. They, had, they made me the head coach because nobody wanted the job. I get the job. I go there and we were a football school. And I told the football coach, I said, I want one thing straight now, coach. I said, no longer is basketball, because he coached basketball at the time, too. And it was like a chance for giving his players conditioning. And I said, that's over with. From now on, the kid plays basketball, they're going to play basketball. And we went out, and my first year, and we shocked the nation, shocked the area, rather. We won a state sectional championship. We won another one, and then we won back-to-back state championships. And that opened the door for me to go to college.
1: Wow. That, that is awesome. And, and I just recently, we had Digger Phelps on, on the show and, you know, as you know, Digger, huge baseball fan as well. And, and uh, you know, his calling ended up being hoops, but, but yep, pretty, yep. pretty awesome to see where, where it all started for, for Dick Vitale. Okay. So 71 to 73, you go to Rutgers as an assistant. And then you move on to the university of Detroit eventually, uh, you end up coaching the Detroit pitch, uh, Pistons. Tell me about those years.
2: Well, you know, 71, I, I go to Detroit, and the first, I mean, Rutgers, rather, I'm the assistant coach, and they give me the recruits to go out and recruit. And I looked at the names, and I looked at where they were, their, their status. I said, who are we going to be, man? Well, I, I want to be Kentucky. I want to be Carolina. I didn't come out of high school here. I'm like 29. I'm, I'm years old, 28 at the time, I guess. And I just said, hey, wait a minute now. Uh I want to win. I want to win now. Let's go. Why can't we go after the best? They said, come on, man. I said, the problem is, see, if you think you're mediocre, you're going to be mediocre. And that's the problem here. Why can't we have Rutgers? We play at Madison Square Garden. I can't get two kids a year. I don't have to go to Harvard to figure out. You get two a year, that's eight players. You, you know, if we get eight players, we're going to be pretty good. And I want to go after the best kids. I'm going to go after the number one player in the country, Philip Sellers from Thomas Jefferson, Brooklyn, New York. I was laughed at. I was ridiculed. Well, I just tell you right now, you go Google the name Philip Sellers, and it'll show you he's the all-time leading scorer in the history of Rutgers, led Rutgers to the Final Four in 1976. Name the Final Four. Here it is, UCLA, Michigan, and Indiana with a shy, introverted coach, Robert Montgomery Knight, the last unbeaten team ever in, in college. basketball, the last unbeaten team. 76, we thought Gonzaga would do it this year, I thought, and it didn't happen. But the bottom line is the fourth team was Rutgers with all the kids we recruited. Well, that led me to getting a head coaching job at the University of Detroit. And we went there, and they told me you wouldn't get fans in the stands because there was time, there was a lot of racial problems in the city and all. I thought that's ridiculous. If you give people a product, they're going to come. I'm going to give them a product. We had standing room only. There. We won 21 in a row. Uh, my last year, we beat the Marquette. We beat them in February in Milwaukee on their court to win our 21st in a row. And then... They go on two months later, and they win the national championship. And I loved Al McGuire. He was as good as guys you could ever meet. You love him, Brett. He was a genuine, just real person. He never called me Dick. He was always, "Hey, Dixie, Dixie." <laughs> I, I mean, he was he was something else, man. I loved him big, big time. But we we were really good. We got beat that year, the first time the school ever went to the. Uh, NCAA tournament and we got in and we had, a, like I said, a great team. We had three NBA players and we had the city going wild and we always wanted to play Michigan and we played in my first year because they were on the schedule and they had a hell of a team nationally rated team, Johnny War We beat them. I couldn't get them on the schedule and my players would come in my office. They're number one in the country, coach. We play with those guys in the summer. We're as good as they are. Why can't we play them? I said, come on. I try like, heck, we can't get them on the schedule. I don't want to hear about Michigan. Well, right before the NCAA tournament, one of my assistants runs in. He says, you're not going to believe it. The parents just came out. They just came out, and they, if we get to the Sweet 16, we play Michigan. Well, we got there, so I called a meeting with the team. I said, hey, you guys want to play Michigan, right? Oh, you're yeah, to talking about play Michigan. We want Michigan. Well, look at here. Well, we got on the board for you. Well, we played that night. It was the last game I ever coached in college. I'm a young guy, chasing dreams, chasing goals. NBC decided to televise the game. And they had John Wooden, going to be the color commentator, and Kirk Gowdy, as you know from baseball fame. I was in my awe when they were at practice. I said to my players, hey, these guys, this represents true greatness. And... I spoke to the team in front of them and talking about how John Wooden represented greatness, 10 national titles. Kirk Gowdy, every every Emmy Award you could win in television, did the World Series, did Red Sox. I mean, he was just a giant of giants. They're going to do our game. We lose a heartbreaker in the last minute to Michigan. Heartbreaker. And I go on and, you know, depressed about losing the game. but. I go on eventually, and I get the job with the Pistons. I get fired by the Pistons my second year. I think it was like four and six, four and eight, something. Like that, I get fired, and it's like the end of the world. You find out a lot about people when my wife used to always tell me: this, a lot of these lot people you think of friends, they're associates. You get them tickets to the games, you get them autographs of players. All this, Jen. She was so right. You don't get no know, phone calls back. I was depressed getting fired, you know. And my, my buddy labeled me in New Jersey as a kid when I was starting coaching. He called, at least to call me a boy, a ball, and dream. And that's what my life was. And now I'm depressed as all hell. I'm sitting home watching Luke and Laura in general hospital. My wife wants to throw me out of the house. So finally, the phone rings. And I get fired on November 8th, 1979. And all of a sudden, the phone rings, and he says, you're not going to remember me, Dick, but I was with John Wooden and Kurt Gowdy, executive producer of NBC Sports, and when we left the arena that night, both guys said to me, you should write his name down. That guy, we love his energy and his enthusiasm. He'd be great in TV. He said, well, I've just been named the head of a new network called ESPN, and I would love you love you to do our very first big game, the in Wisconsin. And that was December 5, 1979. I told him, I said, ESPN? What the hell is that? That sounds like a disease, ESPN. Never heard of it. I said, I'm not interested really. I want to get back to where I belong in college. Lucky for me that about a week or 10 days later, he called me back and I went and did that game. And if you tell me, Mr. Boone, 42 years in the bank from ESPN, and along the way, so many beautiful things have happened. I mean, I I, I just pinched myself how lucky I've been.
1: Yeah, it was amazing to me because, you know, at, at, and you know, you've prepared for a lot of things in your life, a, a lot of, you know, before going on set. So, I'm preparing for my Dick Vitale podcast, and I read that. It said, yeah, and, and you were very reluctant. To to take the job, he said, "I don't know nothing about TV, and but I still don't you know, know nothing." <laughs> don't right, know nothing. and you fast forward, and and man, what a ride it's been. So I got I got a question. A lot of a lot of great announcers have done this, done what you know in, in your arena, but but I think very few have had the cultural effect that you've had. What do you attribute that to? You know, everybody knows the awesome baby and the diaper dandy. Uh, but what do you attribute to just the uh-huh. effect you've had? You're different. You're different. And, and I think you know that. But what do you attribute it to?
2: You know, I, I think basically a lot of it's, uh, you know, my enthusiasm, my energy. I've always been that way. I, I guess when I lost my eyes as a kid, some people told me I think I used that as a, as a means of trying to go the extra step. I don't know how true that is. But uh, I came from a great home. My mother and father were uneducated, fifth grade, doctor to love, taught my brother, sister, and I in this great country. If you have a sense of passion and pride, a lot of good things could happen. And I've always tried to attack everything I've done. I've made some mistakes along the way we all do in life. But I know one thing nobody could ever accuse me of, I'm not always giving my best. I always, no matter what I do, till a telecast to today, it's like the first one I'm doing, I prepare Prepare, prepare, prepare like crazy. See, the bottom line, Brett, if you don't prepare at my age, the first thing they do, he's washed up. He's senile. He don't know anymore. Get rid of him. So you try to beat that to the punch so my wife knows I prepare probably better than ever with names, with things out there, statistics, and really be prepared to not give them that edge. And my bosses know. I've told my bosses I don't know how many times. I said, let me tell you this. You're not going to have to tell me when it's over. When it's over, I will know it. I will pick up the phone, call you up, I've made a hell of a living, I said, the bottom line is I will not embarrass the network, I will embarrass my family, and I certainly don't want to embarrass myself. Because you know yourself, you get a little bit, I'm 81 years old now. And people get amazed and come up to me, man, you act like you're 12. That's the greatest compliment you can give me. Because when I start acting 81, I know the party's over. I still go play singles tennis. I try to keep in shape. I try to make good decisions. I got a beautiful wife who's going on our 50th anniversary. And right now, my goal is, you know, I tell people this, I'm in 14 Hall of Fames. I was in the Hall of Fame, the Italian Hall of Fame, the National Basketball Hall of Fame, Broadcasting Hall of Fame, uh, the Italian Hall of Fames. I mean, I'm, I'm in more where I coached in college, where I coached in high school, and they got Hall of Fames all over, and I can't run, I can't jump, I can't shoot. I got a body by lasagna, linguini, <laughs> fettuccine, and I'll tell you one thing. The reason I'm in those Hall of Fames is all my life. I had energy and excitement of what I'm doing. I always try to treat each game like it's the most important game in my life. And that's the way I've tried to attack life. You he, talk about the terms. You know, a lot of people send me notes. Say, hey, what about this? What about that? No, a lot of them I got from being in the locker room. You know, he's player, bitch, and moans. Says, you don't give me no PG, coach, no playing time. And I put that PT when I talk on TV. Hey, coach, you should have got a to here. A timeout, baby. Hey, you know, 3S man. That guy's super scintillating, sensational. And I use a little of that in the world of TV. And I steal a lot from a lot of people.
1: (laughs) Very cool, though, because it's relatable and the players will go. You got that for bus. The great Jim Valvano, you guys were close. And uh, you continue to honor him with with all the charity work you do for the v uh, the V Foundation. Obviously, uh, if you haven't seen that speech, listen to the Boone podcast, definitely google that unbelievable that the don't ever give up. Uh, talk a little bit about him.
2: Yeah, Jimmy was special, you know, very unique, very uh, special talent. He could make a room. I used to tell him he was Seinfeld before Seinfeld. He was one of the funniest people you could ever be around. And, man, be with him after a win, <laughs> go to the, the restaurant, and then sit there with him and give him a lot of bottle of wine. And, oh, my God, the stories and the stories. I got one great story they tell. I don't know how true it is. He told me it. They go out to the uh, White House. They win the national championship in 83. Shock America. B-Fi, Slamma, Jamma, Drexler, and they win the national title. So they're going out to the White House, and he has a big jersey. He's going to present to President Reagan, and he said, just before they started, Reagan, one of his assistants said it's true, and Reagan leaned over to him and said, is it Valvano or Valvuno? and Jimmy without breaking stride everybody gets Mr President is a Reagan or is a Reagan or Reagan <laughs> I mean <laughs> J- 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 Jimmy it was one of the funniest guys and to see him suffer the way he did at the end just broke my heart. And I'm so proud to be on a board of directors of the V Foundation. Uh, I I concentrate. My goal is raising money because I know Jimmy used to love kids too. His mind's all geared to kids. Uh, right now, we've got my gala coming up in three weeks. Uh, we're going to have a live one last year. We had to go virtual. This one will be live at the Ritz-Carlton Resort in Sarasota. Uh, we'll honor some special people as well. And we have some great celebrities that join us And we've raised so far since I started this $37 million for research for kids. But we need a lot more because, you know, every day, like today, when you and I are talking, Brett, 45 to 50 moms and dads are going home today and they're hearing four words that no mother and father ever wants to hear your child has cancer because it's life changing. I've gotten to know these families. I've gotten, we bring a dozen kids every year to my, my gala. We call them my all courageous team. I speak about each kid. I get to know them. I just it's not a one-time thing. I talk to them during the year, the whole bit. and I've gotten to know a lot of these kids like, This kid, Joshua Fisher, he's in 1,200 doses of chemo, 12 years old, uh, less than Herman, a tremendous, not good, a tremendous hockey player. He's 13 now, plays for the older kids. He's in his fourth battle, talking to his dad about three days ago. Jared, he's in his fourth battle with brain cancer, and he's doing 52 weeks of of chemo for the fourth time. Imagine that, and now the poor kid. He's a great hockey player. He called his dad a couple of months ago. His dad told me the story. He's doing chemo, and after he goes, he tells the doctor, I'm playing hockey tonight. The doctor says, you can't play hockey tonight. You just did chemo therapy. Not No, i playing hockey. Father told me, "Jerry, had called me. So you're not going to believe it. Weston's throwing up in the car. He's throwing up on the lawn. He's in that house putting his hockey stuff on. He says, he's just going to play hockey. He scores. He made the papers. He scored three goals. Yeah, two assists, and I mean, just the kid is special. But can you mean the pain that the family goes through? You can't work, you can't think about doing uh, things you'd like to do because you're thinking all you're thinking about what your child is going through. So I'm I'm obsessed with this. And if anybody listens to Brett's podcast, please, I need help. My goal this year I want to raise five million dollars. Last year we did a great thing; we raised a lot of money. I want to get five million this year, and it's not easy with a pandemic. There's a lot of guys out there. I wish I could reach baseball players, basketball players, entertainers who really look to make donations. If you could just reach the right people, and all I can tell you is this: I'm trying to get five million. I need a million five more, and I've got three weeks to get it. And I'm going to get it. I know I'm going to get it because I'm not going to quit. Going 24 seven. So if anybody would like to donate, they just can go to. DickVital.com. You donate right there, and the money goes to the V Foundation in memory of Jimmy V, and it goes for kids battling cancer.
1: That's awesome. And yeah, it's, it, you said it's dickvital.com.
2: That's it, Dick That's great,
1: I, and I hope we we us. make it to that five million. That would be that would be awesome. And you know, I can hear it in your voice. You're as passionate about that as as everybody sees Dick Vitale on TV. It doesn't waver, but this is real life stuff. So that's that's really yeah. Cool.
2: You know, and, and Brett, try speaking. I did three of them, two, three of them. Uh, Funerals. It just breaks your heart watching a mother and father. Toughest speech. I speak all over the country at corporate events, black pie events. I mean, I'm you name it, I've done them with to watch the speakers for the last 40 years, 30 years. Uh, I've been a part of the air stable. Speaking was the toughest thing in the world, speaking at a child's funeral. Just unbelievable watching moms and death, putting a child to rest. Nothing worse. And that's why I'm obsessed. I got five healthy grandkids, and I can't even imagine, can't even imagine that happening. And it just would break me up my heart. Big
1: time. Dick Very cool. I want to get on to, uh well, you know, I, I looked at this and I said, ah, Dick's done a bunch of commercials, Geico Hooters, DiGiorno's pizza. But then I see the movies, blue chips. I like blue chips with Shaq jury duty, the Six man. But then I got to the naked gun and I, and I <laughs> checked it out and I checked out the booth and and I did, this is me watching it, knowing how big of a baseball fan you are, but you're in there with Mel Allen and and Dick Enberg and McCarver. and and you're up in the booth for that. So tell me tell me about that that Naked Gun movie and how much fun that was to to shoot.
2: Oh, it's just tremendous fun. It was the funnest, the best time was going out for lunch with all those guys and listening to all the stories. Billy Crystal was there with us. I mean, Joe they, West. To listen to the. Stories were unbelievable. They were just on one, one story after another. You know, Tim McCarver, by the way, had a place down here uh, where I live, down in the Sarasota, Bradenton area. He's a terrific guy. He was a great, great announcer.
1: I got, uh, I got a chance. You know, Timmy was a uh, Timmy was a teammate of my dad back in his Philly days. And then uh, at, when I was a player, I, I did the 03 uh, ALDS. And I was the third guy in the booth, so it was Buck and Timmy, and I hadn't seen Timmy well other than passing during the season once in a while. I'd see him, but I got to work with him for for four or five days, and and uh, yeah, that was that was interesting. That that was that was me being a current player, though, and kind of being in the booth. I was just kind of there to watch. It wasn't right. taken it that serious. Now I look back, uh, <laughs> I would I would have done a few things a little bit different. But as a current player, being critical. Uh, of players on the field, I found was very difficult. Now, when you step away yeah. and I'm I'm removed a few years, it, it becomes you know I could be a little bit more fair and not worry about facing Pedro Martinez three months from now. But
2: right, yeah, right. That, 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 that's life, still one of the fear, You know, as long as you're fair with the players, I think people respect it. And you know, you could be positive and and still get a little uh, critiques here and there about different situations. I've, I've been very, very blessed in my life, 40-some years doing it and try to always look for the good in people. Uh, but you got to tell the truth, too. If there's something not going on that you think is or should be going on, you got to be able to spell it out.
1: Yeah, you'll lose the respect of the, of the fans listening to you. Absolutely. What the, yep. What's the biggest difference between baseball and basketball? I'm going to give you a scenario. You're down at, at Tropicana Field. Can you jump in the dugout and take over for Kevin Cash if, if you had to?
2: Yeah, I think I can, because I have a little baseball experience. I, I, I think I can. I think there's certain things that if you follow the game religiously, I mean, obviously, I don't know all the technical things, but I, I think I know a little bit about hit and run, butt, but, well, because I did coach baseball for a while. But uh, uh, football, I think, would be tougher to do. I, I couldn't go to a football scene. But baseball, I think I could jump in and and. and and what's him Jimmy Leland had me doing? It was unbelievable. For a spring training game. Jimmy Leland calls me and puts me in the dugout and the dugout with was Managed the team a while. So uh we had a Bonds that was on the team there. Bonds was playing with him with the pirates. And uh, I said, Jimmy, I said, uh I don't think Barry would give it a similar kid, you know, if I've had three innings or whatever I'm done. So, uh, so I busted his chops a little bit. I so, said, Yeah, Barry, you don't want to go you want to get out of letter, but not hit next time because look who's warming up in the bullpen right now. And it was the lefty for Toronto. Uh, he was a good lefty. Jimmy Key. Jimmy
1: Key. Jimmy, Is Jimmy that the name
2: Jimmy Key? Yeah, he,
1: that he, a he left became a Yankee.
2: Pitcher? He was he was a good left handed pitcher, right?
1: Yeah. Oh, Jimmy yeah. was so, tremendous.
2: Yeah. So anyway, I said, you don't want to face him. So Bon goes you can't be serious. You can't be serious, Dick. You can't be serious. Says so, Jim, I'll stay around for another battle. So he goes, he takes him for a triple. He gets in the third. He's tipping his hat to the thing out. We set a pitch runner for him. And we just, but I had so much fun. Um, Barry was a fun guy. If you really got to know me, give me that tough guy look, all the time, that tough attitude, you know, and all that jazz. But down deep, he was a really good guy. And, you know, I, I, he was some kind of player, man. Forget about playing with the steroids. He was a Hall of Famer based on what he did before and all started.
1: Greatest by far I've ever seen, and and I think you know we've had this conversations many time on the Boone podcast. <laughs> the Barry Bonds comes up, and I said if you took a poll amongst Barry Bonds' peers from start to finish of his career, threw it all into a hat, and asked them. Who's the best player you've ever seen? I would say ninety-five percent of the feedback would be, without a doubt, Barry Bonds. He was just—he yeah, was I'm playing at—he was playing at a different level than the rest of us.
2: Yeah, he—he was—he was tremendous. The guy in Seattle was pretty good too, by the name of Griffey.
1: Best teammate I've ever played with, most talented oh, teammate, Griffey. Best player I've ever seen, Bonds. So. Kenny might be a little angry at me, but I, I but I don't think he would be. I mean, y- you'd look at the back of Barry's bubblegum. I mean, he's breaking Babe. Bro. When you start breaking Babe Ruth records, you're doing <laughs> something. You're moving and shaking. All right, raise. 08 Madden's at the helm. You had some lean years cuz my my favorite skipper Lou Panella who I had in Seattle, you stole him. He was down with the Rays for a few few years. That that probably wasn't the best match. Lou and young players, not very good lean years, but 08 uh Longoria was the was the star of the team then. Madden had the helm. How how was 08 for you being that big Rays fan?
2: Oh man, it was tremendous. Somebody, uh, I'll remember that too uh Uh, We won a pennant, beat the Red Sox on a dramatic home run to go on a pennant, got beat by the Phillies. But the the situation was one that uh, uh, stood out in my mind because I had my grandkids with me, and uh, they were, like, young, I don't know, five, four, five, six years old. And after the game, Poppy Ortiz is standing in the dugout watching the Rays celebrate uh, when they won the uh, pennant and beat the Red Sox to, to go to the World Series. And he looked at me and he said, I have no more use for these bats. Give them to the kids. He had his three bats. And then the other guy that left, they had a left field. Oh, uh, uh, Jason Bay. Jason Bay. He ended up giving us a bat or two as well. So we left the stadium. My grandkids could not believe it. They're walking out of the stadium with four or five bats. It was just uh, but it was a great moment. And then, you know, we we ran out of gas, obviously, in the, in the World Series. But to get there is just a great thrill. And, you know, last year really was the one, you know, this past year – I thought I love Kevin Cash. He's done a great job taking over here. He's a great communicator. Players love him, uh, but too much analytics, man. When they took out Blake Snell, they took him out in that inning when he came up, one guy on base, one out, I think, and took him out, and just everything just went south. Everything went south, and it was all analytics. He had struck out the top three guys six times, two twice each guy, and he's coming up. And and get a little scratch single off him. One of the, he was unhittable. He reminded me of the year that he won uh, about two three years early. He won the Cy Young, and he was like run run, run average about one point five. I mean, he was unhittable. And then he got hurt. And I told my wife in about the second inning because I went to a lot of games. i don't know, thirty games a year. I said that's that's Blake Snell of three years ago. He's looking at me, I, I can't believe it. he's such control, great poise. Placing the ball where he wants, good velocity, and for them to lose. I thought the only way we could beat the Dodgers in Game Six was he had to shut them out and beat them one nothing. And he was capable of doing that, like Jack Morris did when he did it with, when he pitched with the Twins. And I, I, I really felt that he had to go all the way in that game for us to win. And if we got to Game Seven, the pressure on the Dodgers would have been unreal unreal and we had charlie morton for game seven going and i'll tell you i think we would have won the world series
1: i'll tell you i think that was a turning point in in the current state of baseball and analytics and i'm such a baseball purist you know where i come from and 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 i embrace what what's what's out there now i mean i think that's important that the game's always moving forward you know part of me uh a part of me is a little bit jealous of all the, the information that, that the players today have just at their fingertips. I would love to have that. But I think we tend nowadays to just do you, – you can't measure heart. You can't measure what's in a, what's, what's in a man's head. And, and right. certain parts of the game need to stay with the manager's gut. I think that moment you're talking about last year, and I had, by the way, I had Tampa Bay beating the Dodgers. I thought they were deeper. I thought their bullpen was better, and that's what wins in the postseason. It's deep starting pitching, deep bullpen. I see what you're saying, losing Morton and Snell. He's pitching for the Padres now. I watched him yesterday. I think he's the best left-handed starter in the game. Rue has got something to say about that, but I think Snell is the best starter. To lose that, that's got to be tough for you guys with the Rays, but getting back to my Snell point, I think you brought up a good point. I think that's going to be a defining moment where we start to, they're never going to, the analytics will never go away. But I think that was kind of a, a sober reminder that you can't run baseball strictly on numbers. There's got to be other variables. And I think you're going to see a little bit of pullback and a little more baseball gut and how we run the game. And I think that that's what the game needs, and I think it'll be good for the game. But uh, yeah, well, I that's, hope so. that, that's and, an interesting. You know it's really
2: bad, though, no, I'll tell you this. I got to go wrap it up now, but I, what I can tell you is this it, it, it blows my mind. I looked just yesterday. The statistics, you know how many guys are hitting 130, 150, 160? I know it's only 16 games, but gee whiz, even you'll you'll watch that thing, it'll go on 80 games, and guys will hit 190, 210, 214, all making mega six, six, seven figures. I mean, you didn't have that in your era. No way, shape, or form.
1: The discrepancy between the great player and the 210 hitter is, is bigger than it's ever been. Uh, oh, wow. So I know I know you got to get out of here soon, but I I want to go here. 2008 Naismith Hall of Fame, kid from Jersey to pretty much the ultimate accolade. How was that? You went it in with so Pat Riley, Elijah, Wan, Ewing, and Dick Vitale. How's that sound for a class?
2: I couldn't believe it, and you know also Adrian Dantley and Kathy Rush, who had great careers. But I I was just in awe, you know, in awe. I couldn't believe it, you know growing up as a kid, to be in here with those people and to be at that moment. Bob Knight was my presenter. And when I got up to speak, you know, it's real. I'll always remember from that event, I must have rehearsed 5,000 times of all the speeches I ever gave. All the guys told me that that was the one moment, you know, you want to make sure you don't forget anybody because no one gets to the Hall of Fame by themselves. It's got to be a team, people opening doors for you, people doing things for your favors over the years. And I don't want to leave anyone out. So I would rehearse and I'd go over this one, this coaches did this for me in high school this one did that and my wife heard my speech going to dinner in the car in the shower in the bedroom at night and now I get up to speak and I look at the crowd and the crowd sit right in front of me if anybody goes to my speech you can see this because they got a video on YouTube Dick Vitale's Hall of Fame speech got a lot of great reviews off it but what I did I looked at the crowd, sitting in front row right there, Magic Johnson, Jerry West, John Havliceks, John Thompsons, the, It was the, the landscape, what was basketball, NBA, college basketball, all right there, and I just talked from my heart, and my wife said to me later, where was the speech that you rehearsed for?" I said, huh? I, I just talked, and one of the things I did, Magic was laughing in the front. So I looked at him, and it get it. I, I saw so, so my speech. You see right there as a magic. I'm going to tell people how you became magic. I'm going to tell them what you did as a kid. And he's laughing hysterically because he knew where I was going about the fact that he would be on a playground early practicing all this jazz. And I just told stories about what went on in my career. Um, my boss was in the crowd, George Bodenheimer. I told a story. President of ESPN. He used to be my driver. I said. I got Mr. primary here now, my president of ESPN. People don't know this. I said, but George was my driver. He would drive me around and moan and groan about, I'm going nowhere in my life. Dickie B, I come from a great college. I want to be a marketing. And they got me driving you, working the mail room, delivering mail. And where am I going? And I said to him, I said, George, you are going to make something about you by your handshake, the way you look me in the eye, the way we talk. You're going to make it someday. And I said, did he make it? I will never forget this moment. I said, I'm in Atlanta airport. Plane is delayed. Plane is, I don't know, what for a reason, some kind of, something went wrong. I grabbed the USA. I got nothing to do. I'm sitting there. I opened the paper, and the headline says, name the president of ESPN, George Bodon. I said, holy, that's my former driver. So I run the phone. No iPhones in that day. I call out. On a, a pay and I call his office, and I tell the secretary I want his voicemail. And I get his voicemail. I'm going nowhere with my life. Where am I going? I drive you around. I'm working the mail room. I said, George, don't forget me. I need a new contract, man. I don't want to <laughs> wish watch for 25 years. Man, he has taken care of me big time, and now he's retired. And, and I, but he, he works with me on the V Foundation on the board, does a great job for us. But... I told those kind of stories in my speech, real life stories of things that went on. And I, I it, it really went well for me. So it's a night I'll always treasure. The only thing I missed so much was the two people most responsible for me being there, weren't there. And that was my mother and father, both up in heaven. And uh, they just, they never let me quit. They've only lost my eyes as a kid. My mother would say, big deal, big deal. She'd say, I don't to tell you my big deal, Richie. She got one eye. So what you could do what anybody else does. I would love for her to see the home I live in, the place I've gone, the people I've met, and it would have been really a great thrill. But she's up in heaven.
1: Wow, Dick Vitale, what what an awesome awesome career, awesome story. I want to thank you very much for coming on the Boone Podcast today. Uh, all the all the people once again. Uh, out there listening to dick give to his foundation dick dick and what we do here on the Boone podcast before we cut out is we've got one question coming from the fans and to give that question is the voice of the Boone podcast dan levy dan
0: hey guys how, hi diggy v how are you hi dan what's going on in chicago dan all right this one comes from tony and schaumburg you've been around and have seen the best basketball players to ever walk the face of this earth if you were to put on a Mount Rushmore of the four best players you've ever actually seen play, who is on that Mount Rushmore?
2: Ooh, wow. Well, you know, number one, I got to go with. Uh, I was a big fan, loved him as uh, Triple Threat. He was a, I got a tremendous player, Oscar Robinson. Big old be on there. I got to put Lou Alcindor, later known as Kareem Abdul Jabbar. I got to put on there certainly Michael, Mister Jordan, and I'm probably going to go right now. He's going to be there because the debate is coming up. I never thought there would even be a debate as to who's the greatest ever to play. But I'm telling you, LeBron is there. LeBron, he rebounds. He passes. He scores. He does it all. He wins. Uh, those four would be the good one. Uh, you know, Magic <clears throat> Magic and Bird are right there, too. I mean, where do you go, Will Chamberlain? I mean, none of that is so tough. But don't you ask my four that I like, those would the
0: That's the four that count, Dick Vitale. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. We really appreciate it, sir.
2: Oh, Brett, two outs? Please, give me a base hit right here, Brett. We need a base hit. Go up the middle, man. Score that guy from second, and we win this game, and we march on.
1: (laughs) You got it. Thanks, Dick.
2: Thanks, Brett. Brett Brett Boone, the Boone family, man. Ray, Bob, Brett, Aaron. They're awesome, baby, with a capital A.
1: Mailbag.
0: All right, let's head on down to the bail bag, shall we?
1: We can. Let's do it, Danny.
0: It. All right, Brett, out of all the things that you have done in your life, Ryan Miami wants to know, are you also a good poker player?
1: Uh, I'm a decent poker player. I'm a decent card player. Uh, I won a few tourneys, a few poker tournaments. But I, I found that it, you got to stay sharp with poker. You know, it's not just play every couple years when I was playing. uh, During my career, we'd have games on the back of the plane. So I kind of kept my mind sharp in the poker arena. But I went out for a charity event uh, a few months back or it's been longer. That's probably been a year now. And I hadn't played for three or four years. And I was rusty. There were some young, uh, brilliant poker minds in the room, and, and I got I got ousted pretty quick. But, yeah, I'm a, I'm, I'm decent with cards.
0: All right. A decent, a decent poker player.
1: And I'm back to this mailbag.
0: All right, Brett. Lou from Charlotte wants to know, what is in your golf bag in terms of irons, putter, woods, drivers? Plus, what kind of golf balls does Brett Boone play with?
1: I'm um, a Pro V1X golf ball, unless the, the greens are real hard. I'll go to a Pro, v, uh, Pro V1. Pro uh, V My irons are a, a kind of a – they're really cool irons. They're blades, but they're called Miura. M-I-U-R-A. They're kind of a, a niche company that, that makes uh, – special order irons. I, I ended up getting a set. I really like them. They're a forgiving blade. I uh, hit a tailor-made driver and I just hit well, speaking of the tailor-made driver, I, I just got the the latest and greatest tailor-made driver. What a great uh, wow. Low spin. Uh, I've only hit it once. I hit it as good as I could possibly hit it. I probably jinxed myself, but putter, the old Odyssey mallet. Uh, my buddies that I've that I play with make fun of me uh, because they say I need to get some new technology in my bag, but I just go with, with the old one I've had for probably 10, 15 years now.
0: All right. And that is why they call him the Boone. Thank you very much to everybody that went ahead and sent those questions in. You can do so via his Twitter handle at the Boon 29 He's also on Instagram as well as Facebook, and he's pretty active on all of it. So if you send some questions that way, we will uh, cherry pick them off. My name is Dan Levy. That's going to do it for the podcast. I am the technical director, producer of the Boom Podcast, as well as the voice of it. Executive producer duties all fall in the lap of Rich Herrera. Digital content gets worked on by Liz Landry. Please share the Boom Podcast with neighbors and friends and all those who love the game of baseball as well as sports. And make sure you subscribe to the Boom Podcast so you never miss an episode of the show. And while you're at it, please give us a five-star rating and share your feelings about the Boom Podcast by leaving a review on whatever platform you listen to on the show. For all of us here on the Boom Podcast, I'm Dan Levy. Thanks for listening. We'll do it again soon. Take care.